Okay, friends, uh, Greg Kokel here, and I am still uh, apparently convalescing. <laughs> As I know, this is going to be released in mid-January, and I am still before Christmas when I'm talking here, preparing for my, my surgery coming up, which for you will already have happened, and so hopefully I survived it. And this isn't a voice from <laughs> from the netherworld kind of thing. Yeah, it's not going to be a problem. But um, in fact, you probably won't even notice I'm gone because we're setting this stuff up in a way that allows you to, uh, you know, just listen through and... Um, get your regular stuff okay so no worries about that uh no calls in today but uh normally 855-243-9975 is the number and uh we will uh be resuming that probably late january my expectation when i can hobble back to the office um amy's hoping i will be here then to do so Otherwise, she's just going to have to do all the shows herself. <laughs> she didn't think that was a funny joke. Uh, oh, she's kind of laughing like a lot, like she knows you're. I'm, I'm joking, right? Yeah, no chance. Though I think she'd be fabulous personally, but that's another issue. So what we're going to do today is we're going to let me uh, read a couple of announcements that are important for January, and uh, then I will get into your open mic calls. And uh, a reminder that um, a new STRU course is available. It's called Making Abortion Unthinkable. And uh, we've usually subtitled that The Art of Pro-Life Persuasion, and that's what Alan Schleeman will do in um, in this particular course with his proven conversational skills that will allow you to simplify the abortion discussion and demonstrate the humanity, the full humanity of the unborn, and make a thoughtful defense for the pro-life view. And you can find that by going to training.str.org, uh, or you can just go to str.org and then look under the training, and you'll find, I think, STRU has got a icon and somewhere off to the upper right-hand side that you can click and get into that, or get behind the registration. It's free, and then have access to a whole host of courses that we have. These are not real complex courses. They are learning level. They're entry level for a lot of people, because what we want is a lot of people to get entry level stuff. But I tell you what, <clears throat> entry level, excuse me, entry level is for a lot of stuff all you need, because some, for most people, the kinds of objections and issues they bring up are so... Um, I don't want to do this in an uncharitable way. I was going to say shallow, but that does sound uncharitable. So they just are not well thought through by the opposition. And many times the same is true of Christians, and this is why we offer these courses, so that we have we have thought through these issues, and then we have tried to organize it in a way and throw the ball so you can catch it. Even if you're a high schooler or a middle schooler, okay, basic stuff for you. So that's uh, that's at your disposal at uh, training.str.org. A uh, reminder of that, let's see, um, Alan Schleeman will be taking your questions on a live Q&A video. Now, he's the one who's, same one who did the course, Making Abortion Unthinkable, but he's taking any questions. And uh, we should... We should this is good because it'll get him in the groove for doing the radio show when I'm not here, maybe during the summer or something, you know. But uh, he'll be doing taking your questions, live Q&A video, 
on Standard and Instagram now. And if you go to str.org, go to the bottom of that homepage, and you'll find the Instagram connection. I never could figure out Instagram. I, you know, I thought it was just like you post pictures at it, and now it's become this very sophisticated, involved, all kinds of stuff you could do with it. Apparently, is that right? Oh, Amy's shrugging. I thought you knew about this. You're, the, you're the youngster, Amy. Okay, well, you're not like youngster, youngster, but you're younger than me. All right. So anyway, but Alan's going to be on Instagram. All right, and that is going to be Wednesday, January 18. And you know what? I don't have a time here for that. Do you have that? Can you look up the time for Alan's uh, Q and A video on? Instagram on Wednesday 18, Amy, and uh, let me know what that is so I can let folk know what that is. You'll probably find it somewhere on our website, but uh, it's January 18th, Wednesday. Oh, this show. Oh, never mind. This show. Okay. Well, too bad you missed Alan. You could have got him sometime on Wednesday, January 18th, but that's past now, so I don't know. It might be archived. So uh, if you want to catch that. Oh, man. Okay, so this is the problem of doing these, uh, you know, off-schedule shows sometime. Okay, well, then February 3rd, that works, right? Alan Schleeman will be at Broadway Christian Church in Mattoon, Illinois. I remember Mattoon. February 3rd, Friday through Sunday, February 5th, for an apologetics conference there. And I will be also at a Desert Apologetics Conference in Palm Springs. Runs Friday, February 9th through Saturday, February 11th. I'll be there on Saturday. Other speakers before and after me. But I'll be speaking on Saturday. And if you want to go to Palm Springs, if you're in the L.A. area, it's cold in the winter. Just so you know. High desert, and it gets cold. And let's see, what else do you need to know? Of course, the Reality Apologetics Conferences. And uh, at this point, when you're hearing this, uh, the f- there's going to be a lot of activity and numbers moving f- regarding the Dallas reality. And I've said this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but <clears throat> if you only go to one reality, this is the one to go to. And if you can only go one day, Friday or Saturday, go Friday. I'm just saying. Just go. Uh, or if you can't go, this is live streamed. So you can also get that there. You go to realityapologetics.com for the information. You can sign up there too. Uh, February 24th and 25th in Dallas. March 24th and 25th in Philly. And April 21st and 22nd in Augusta. All right? There you go. There you have it. Now, we do some more open calls. Again, that number is 857-342-5787. If you want to call in and leave your question verbally online, or you can also go to uh, homepage and podcast and live broadcasts and follow the prompts and leave your question there. And that's what a number have done. Uh, let's see. I feel like I'm missing a page. Oh, there it is. Oh, we got so many here. Wow. Let's, um, how would your son say something? Okay. Let's go to Hope's call. And uh, actually, it's a quickie, 10 seconds. And uh, respond to that. Hope. How would you respond to somebody who says, 
that it doesn't matter if the Bible is taken literally and that we can just appreciate it for its moral value? Hmm. All right, good question. And there are a lot of people that uh, raise this issue. They don't take it literally. They just appreciate it for its moral value. Okay, three things there. Um, Let me just go to the middle, appreciate. I'm not sure. Let me back up. Um, Tactically, there's too much ambiguity in this kind of challenge, and so as a Christian, you want to ask questions for clarification. What do you mean by that? That is our first question. It is our first, um, uh, you know, the, it's the first step of our game plan, because you can't go forward unless there's clarification. And the concept of literally needs to be clarified, moral value needs to be clarified, but appreciate it needs to be clarified. What, what do you mean appreciate it? Am I walking into a, um, uh, like an art museum and say, you know what, these pictures of like whatever, you don't have to worry about them being real places. Maybe they're not. They could just be in the ma- Just appreciate the painting. Okay, so I'm looking at it going, ah, I appreciate what they've done. Well, what does that mean with moral values? You appreciate the moral value. Does that mean you agree with it? Does that mean you realize that this might be good for some people, not for others, but it's a nice token? It's a nice gesture. Uh, It isn't necessarily obligatory since we don't take it literally. We don't take it at face value. We don't take it as what the words would normally mean, but we can just appreciate it. So when, um, oh, the Bible says, love one another, I could say, oh, that's really noble. I appreciate the sentiment. Now, I'm not going to do that with other people. I'm going to do what I want to, and sometimes if it makes me feel good in the moment, I'll do something that I consider loving, and other times I'm not going to do it loving because I don't like those people, and I'm going to be mad at them, and it'll make me feel good just to let them have it one way or another because I, 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 don't, I don't take the moral value literally. I just appreciate it. So n- notice that this way of characterizing it doesn't tell you hardly anything. I'm not sure what they mean by appreciate it. Okay. As for taking it literally, I'm not sure what they mean by that either. And I just made a reference to love. Love one another. Of course, we don't take that literally, do we? Well, then what way is it to take it? When I say literally, um, generally you mean at face value, according to the normal, ordinary meanings of the words. And um, and also, I think this keep takes into consideration figures of speech. So when Jesus said, I am the door, who, he who comes in through me will be welcomed, or something like that. He's, he doesn't mean he's made of wood. Okay, that would be taking it literalistically. Um, like in a wooden, that's a pun, I guess, wooden literalism. No, he, he's, he's describing something true about himself that we are to take as such. That is, there is a—whenever figurative language is used, it is meant to communicate, after a fashion, a literal truth. There's a real factual point that's being made. So if we don't take the Bible literally, then what are we doing with it? The irony is that people who don't want to take the Bible literally 
only don't want to take literally those clear things it says that they don't like. And especially what might seem to be fanciful items like supernatural events. Well, are we to take the uh, resurrection of Jesus as if it actually happened? That would be literally, right? As if it actually took place. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I'll make that 15, that if, if Jesus hasn't literally risen from the dead, and by the way, I mean literally, literally, nowadays you have to make that qualification, my daughter's always saying, literally this, literally that, literally the other thing. It doesn't mean literally. It's confusing. But you know what we're talking about in itself, as such. If Jesus didn't come out of the tomb after he was dead for three days, a corpse that came alive again, if that didn't actually happen, then Paul says, a lot of things about that in 1 Corinthians 15, but he ends by saying, people should pity us because we didn't take the resurrection, or it didn't literally happen. We took it literally, believing in an event that never took place because it wasn't meant to be understood literally, but, I don't know, something else. Then what is the something else? What is the meaning behind it? And this is where you always need to go back to what the author had in mind. You take meanings according to the author's intent. In fact, you can't avoid that. For the person who says you shouldn't take the Bible literally, then I could say, do you mean that literally or figuratively? Maybe I should take your words literally at their face value. See the confusion this causes. So I'd want to know, when he says, don't take this literally, does he mean, we don't mean Jesus is a stick when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He's not saying we're all a bunch of bushes. Okay, well, yes, I agree with you there. When when he says that, uh, you know, all of Israel, when the Scripture says all of Israel was down there where John was baptizing, well, I don't think the country was empty except for that massive mob circling John who is there in the river. No, it's a hyperbole. It's a figure of speech, but it's meant to communicate something that is actually true. That means, boy, that was a big deal. People were taken with John the Baptist, and they were down there where he was doing his thing, and there were lots and lots and lots of them. This was no secret. It didn't happen in a corner. This was a big, giant deal that shook up and caught the attention, captured the attention of the of the of the country as a whole all right that's what that means of course i don't have to explain that you know what that means when people talk that way so there is a face value meaning we want to know when somebody says i don't take the bible we shouldn't take the bible literally what is it they mean that we shouldn't be doing now they might be meaning well don't take figures of speech in a literalistic way well of course not that's common sense. That's the way all reading should be done. You don't read the sports page literally, where a group of human beings stomped, smashed, devoured, obliterated uh, another group of human beings, all with different colored uniforms on. No, that's just figures of speech, right? But there is a, a straightforward, factual, 
literal, if you will, truth that is being communicated. So that's one thing. The other thing is appreciate, whatever that means. We've already talked about that. And appreciate it for its moral value. What moral value does it have if we are not taking them as commands? If, if it, I mean, to take the obvious one, the most oft quoted, love one another, all right? If we don't take that as a command and we just kind of appreciate it because it has moral value, then what good is it? I've already mentioned this. What does moral value mean? Um, now, some people might say, well, what we, should, we shouldn't believe in all the fanciful things of Scripture, all the miracles and, you know, axe heads floating and uh, Red Seas parting and people arising from the dead. But there's a lot of good moral things, do's and don'ts, that you find in the Bible. Oh, okay. So we should take those things literally, too. Those are the things. And maybe that's what they mean by appreciating the moral value. Follow the moral precepts. Okay. <clears throat> then where would we find those? Oh, the Sermon of the Mount. That's the uh, greatest moral teaching the world has ever seen. Many people acknowledge that. Okay, did you ever read it? Jesus says, first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, it actually appears in different places in, in various ways. He probably gave the sermon a number of times, but the famous one is in Matthew 5 through chapter 5 through chapter 7. Okay? And he starts out in chapter 5 after he says, uh, Blessed, 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 which is all really nice. Blessed are the poor in spirit for those who be the kingdom of heaven. And the blessed are beautiful until they say, Blessed are you when men persecute you. Oh, that doesn't sound like very blessed, does it? Then he says that your righteousness, oh, here comes the moral teaching, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Huh? Those guys are pretty righteous dudes, at least in their visual behavior. They were strict about everything. They were really, really fundies, right? They weren't fun. They were fundies, fundamentalists, okay? And every single piece of their life was regulated by law. Jesus said, you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. You are you are so careful you give 10% of your spices that you harvest. All right? So they were really tough, but you have to be more righteous than them to inherit the kingdom. What? Who could be more righteous than them? And then he says, the law said, just to give clarification, don't commit murder. Oh, I didn't murder anybody. Did you ever call your brother a fool? You, of course, you're going to hell. That's Jesus. Don't commit adultery. Oh, I didn't do that. Did you ever think about it? Uh, yeah, right. You're going to hell. That's Jesus. So even when we look at the moral teaching or the greatest moral commandments, Love your Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You are concerned, as concerned about the well-being of your neighbor as you are concerned about your own well-being. Okay? Put those in your pipe and smoke it. Who does that? Not me, I'll tell you that. 
when we live by the moral teaching of the Bible, we realize you can't live by the moral teaching. It doesn't mean you can't aspire to those things and improve towards those, but if those are the standards of your acceptance with God, we fail every single time. You ask people, do you keep those moral precepts? Well, I'm trying. No, I didn't ask you if you're trying. I asked you if you keep them. And the answer they gave I'm trying is evidence that the answer to the question is no. They don't keep them. But they must be kept, because these are God's laws. Whoever stumbles at one point, though he keep the rest of it, is still a transgressor. This is James chapter 2. You can't, you, look, if you, if you don't murder anybody in our communities, but you rob a bank, you're still a transgressor, right? You didn't do one, break one law, but you broke another one. You're guilty of the law, and so if we are going to even take seriously the moral commands of Jesus, we are sunk, which I think is part of the point. It is for us to be, and this is where he starts there in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They are aware of their spiritual poverty because they realize they can't do the things that are necessary. Blessed are you! because it's only that kind of person that avails themselves of the grace of God, just like the Pharisee and the, and the uh, tax-gatherer Pharisees in the front of the synagogue praying to himself, oh, look at how great I am, the tax-gatherer, the extortionist, the thief, is in the back of the synagogue, won't even lift his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax gatherer that went away justified before God, not the one in the front that was propounding his great religiosity. So um, this statement, uh, Bible doesn't need to be taken literally, we can just appreciate it for its moral value, doesn't make any sense. And this is, the response to the question is to ask more clarification questions to have them be precise enough so that this alternative reading of the Bible at least makes some sense, because as it stands, it doesn't. All right, let's take a break, and we'll have more of your open mic calls when I return on Stand to Reason. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. 
our speakers can address a wide array of topics from bioethics, gender issues and science to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. All right. More questions uh, here on Santa Reason, open mic calls, and uh, this is from Ingrid. And uh, before we hear from it, I just noticed there seems to be a, a number of calls that we've dealt with in the past that have to do with my church is pursuing this course of action, what should I do? And sometimes it's innocuous, it seems, or it's not clearly problematic. But other times, you know, I wonder what the heck is going on with churches, right? Okay, so let's uh, hear from Ingrid, Ingrid rather, uh, about her concern with the church. Hi, Greg. My name is Ingrid, and there is a question that I have been thinking about for a few days, and I just wanted to see what your thoughts were. I found out recently that one of the main worship leaders at our church was at a gay pride fundraising event here in Dallas. And frankly, I'm very disconcerted that someone like that is someone who is singing on stage front and center every Sunday at our church. And I then just started thinking about the fact that while our church addresses a biblical worldview and addresses culture. The only thing that they discuss in regards to culture is really a sexual morality. They've never discussed homosexuality. They've never discussed abortion. And now my concern is that I'm attending a church that only addresses the less conflicting things in culture rather than the more conflicting things. And I'm not quite sure what to do. I started praying about it, but I also even noticed that on our own church's website where the beliefs are outlined that there is no reference to either abortion or homosexuality. And now I'm worried that I'm attending a church that is too, is starting to capitulate to culture and just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Um, any insight would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much and have a blessed day. Well, thank you, Ingrid. I, I appreciate it. I'm saddened by what you have to say because the indication here is not good, though there is a question I have about the worship leader that attended a gay pride fundraising event. Now, I think the question that needs to be asked at this point is why? Um, if it's what it appears to be, in uh, that is that because there is sympathy, uh, there's a, uh, a a certain sympathy. He is he uh, presumably let's see, just as a worship leader, he or she is sympathetic to the movement, and is theologically gay friendly 
as opposed to just being friendly with gays. They're there because they are sympathetic to the movement and to the idea that they should, the organization should be raising funds. That's a problem. If, if the worship leader is there for a different reason, and that's entirely possible, uh, though I don't think it's probable, it's possible that they have a friend who's gay and they wanted, as an expression of their friendship, to be with their friend here, not participating in the fundraising event, not giving money or anything like that, but as, as an expression of friendship, um, well, that would be different. Now, my suspicion is that's not what's going on. All right. And especially since your church doesn't really talk about homosexuality or abortion, it does seem like there is a there is a purposeful avoidance of those questions. And I say purposeful because of the time that we're in and the culture that we're in. Roe versus Wade was just overturned. This is the most dramatic high court decision in the in well certainly in this millennium so far in the last 20 years but I, i'm trying to even since roe versus wade originally since 1973 it's hard to imagine any other supreme court decision that is so has such a, a massive moral consequence you know between the 1973, when Roe was decided, and when it was overturned, there were 63 million abortions in the United States of America. Just to give you an idea, that is 10 holocausts back-to-back, Hitler holocausts, 6 million Jews, just the Jews part. That's 10 of those back-to-back. Okay, so um, that's more people that, than died in the Second World War. And I'm talking, I don't mean just soldiers, I mean civilians, men, women, children, soldiers from all countries that fought in the war, and all civilians that died. Just to put it in perspective, is this not the most significant human rights issue? How is it that any church can be silent on this? If the issue was slavery, or sexual slavery, would would the church speak out regarding sexual slavery as an immorality? I, I, I imagine they would, but how how could they speak out against sexual slavery, or if there was human slavery like uh, before the Civil War, <clears throat> uh, they would they they would think speak out against that. How could they not speak out against Roe versus Wade or abortion? How can they be silent? This is not. This is not uh, bode well for them in their convictions. Now, what's a little curious, Ingrid, by your comment, and if we were chatting, I would ask more about this. You said they do speak out regarding sexual morality. And uh, I presume that means heterosexual morality, no fornication, no adultery. And the curious thing is, is most a lot of conservative churches will speak out against homosexuality, but will not speak out with equal fervor against heterosexual sin. And that's a little bit odd, right? 
But here you've got the other way around, apparently. So why would they speak out against um, heterosexual immorality, but not homosexual immorality? That, and if that's the case, if, if I understood your comment correctly, that really looks bad. That means they are willing to speak on sexual morality, but but not willing to speak on homosexual sexual morality. And then when you have a worship leader that attends a gay pride fundraising event, and of course, like I said, it's not clear why, but my suspicion is, because of sympathy, that is not good. Now, I consider this issue of homosexuality especially, I think the abortion is the biggest human rights issue, but the the issue of homos, and so that's all by itself is huge. If a church is not willing to take a public stand on that, to me this is worse than churches not willing to take a public stand on slavery before abolition. All right? Um, it's worse because this isn't just humans enslaved, this is humans that are murdered. And there were a lot more babies murdered since Roe v. Wade in the United States of America than were ever enslaved in North America, or at least in the States. So, okay, so that's one thing. Uh, the, the, but then you have the qu- silence on homosexuality, and I count homosexuality to a bellwether, as a bellwether, that is an indicator of, of capitulation to culture, which is your very concern, Ingrid. And an unwillingness to speak out on this issue, especially when it is it is slammed in our face everywhere we turn, and all the other sexual issues too, and the gender and transgender, this is all part of the same package. LGBTQT, right? Wait, LGBT. Lesbian, gay, bi, and transgender. It's all part of the same package. And then you got all the rest of the letters that are being added. But uh, it's part of the package. And it's everywhere. People are losing their jobs over this issue. And the church has nothing to say in guiding its flock on the morality of these issues or how to respond to the cultural issues they face? Really? This is not a good sign. So uh, it looks like then on the two most pressing cultural issues today that pertain to moral issues relevant to a Christian worldview, this church is failing badly. And that would be a signal to me to move on. Now, it might be helpful to ask some leadership the questions. One, about that church worship leader who went to the Gay Pride fundraising event. Help me to understand what was going on there. Just don't get an argument. Just get more information. What was that all about? And see if they respond. If they get angry because you asked the question, oh, not a good sign. Now, it might turn out that this is completely innocuous. I hope so, but mm, we'll see. Check that out. But then I would ask others uh, on an executive level, why don't we speak out regarding abortion and homosexuality when these are the biggest 
moral issues that the church faces in our culture today? What could be bigger? There are theological issues that are big, not moral ones. And ever, and since we do speak, you could say, on sexual morality in general, why not address this particular issue? See what they say. And if it turns out they're just soft on these things, they just, whatever, you're going to have to judge their rationale. Some people give, well, we don't think these are the appropriate blah, blah, this, that, and the other thing. I don't know. So they made a principal decision to be silent on these. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that there's anything that they would say to me that would convince me that it is appropriate for them as a church to be silent on these issues. Now, I'll let them have their beliefs. It's their job to run the church, the pastor's job to make their decisions, and it's our job to decide whether we want to stay or not. But if this church is what it looks like from what you've told me, Ingrid, I would not go there because I could not respect the leadership. If you can't respect the leadership to whom you have obligation to be submissive in some measure, then you don't belong there. You should go to another church. Hard words, I think, unfortunately for you, especially if you've been there for a while, but there's a lot of churches that are moving in this direction. And uh, so it's... It, it, are, this is where we're supposed to be fed in a variety of different ways. And one of those ways is to be able to substantively address the cultural issues that we're facing. We, are, we find ourselves <clears throat> immersed in a cultural set of circumstances, and it's, it, it's our job to see that the injustices of the culture are addressed, and that would be abortion. It's also our job uh, to, to tell the body of Christ that we are to stand tall and stand firm on the moral dictates that God has given us for the reasons he's given them. God made human beings a certain way. He made marriage a certain way. I mean, it's all part of the original account. This is why Jesus in Matthew 19, is it Matthew 19 when Jesus talked about marriage and divorce? Yeah. Why, he goes back to the beginning. Have you not read that from the beginning he made them male and female? That's the way he starts his answer to the question about divorce. He goes to the foundation of marriage, and that is gender. Gender is binary, and it's one and the other. Not both together. Not man and man, not woman and woman, but man and woman. Male and female. Because that's the only combination that will allow them to be fruitful and multiply. That's the way God put it together. <clears throat> so if they're abandoning that, you know, that's find another church, simply put. Okay. So I hope that helps, Ingrid. It's a tough issue, but we need to be clear on these. I, I have, you know, talked about this for a long time now. Faithfulness is not theologically complicated. Faithfulness on these issues is not theologically complicated. All right, let's take a break and more of your open mic calls when I return on Stand to Reason. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, 
consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. All right, final segment of this hour. And I, I think these questions are great, these open mic calls, and we got a bunch of them in the last couple of days, and they're serving us well when we need them. And hopefully they're serving you as well, because uh, you're able to get your questions in without having to wait online and interact and all that other stuff. But it's a live question. Open mic calls. Eight five seven three four two five seven eight seven is the number to call, or go to our homepage, and under podcasts, then live broadcast, you'll see the prompts that will help you there. Uh, this one here is, it says three seconds. <laughs> Doug Clark, he's fast. That's probably a typo, uh, because I can't read this. Your summary in three seconds, Amos. All right, Doug Clark on free will. Many scientists are claiming that free will is simply a concept but not a reality, period. What does the Bible have to say about discussing free will as a reality-based truth statement? Is that it? Oh, okay, that's it. <laughs> Had a couple of pauses there. Um all right, Doug, I think this is an area that um, is misunderstood by um, scientists and uh, non-scientists. <laughs> Theologians, I think there's a lot of confusion about this. And part of the problem is that um, it's not entirely clear how best to define free will, and there are different ways to do this. Although there, it's, there's a common sense notion that the dis, free, free, free will is a, entails decisions that are my own. Um, I make the decision for my own reasons. They are not determined. The decision is not determined by anything, and therefore I get to decide. And reasons are the things in virtue of which we decide, but they aren't the things that compel or cause the decision that we make. And, I mean, that's a pretty common-sense notion. We think about freedom. Now, the question is, do we have such 
freedom. So here's the question I asked with science. In light of what I just described, did the scientists come to a conclusion on their own without being forced that we are determined and don't have free will? Fair question. If we are determined, they cannot come to a conclusion on their own as a matter of discursive reasoning that brings them to the conclusion that there is no freedom. Because all of those actions that would have looked like free acts of decision-making and concluding something based on evidence would really have been determined by the physical situation or circumstances that came before it, okay? Think of dominoes falling. It's the simplest way to think of it. A domino in a line of dominoes falls because a different domino is falling against it, and then it strikes the next domino, which then continues the sequence. <clears throat> if we are determined, we are merely a domino. We are struck by other uh, causes, other events, that cause us to, to, to do something which then causes other events. We are not make, making any more decision, actual decision, than a domino is. Can't step out of the line. We can't choose to, we can't choose to resist the one domino that's falling and therefore not strike the other one. We are simply pieces of the machine. It's machine-like behavior. Now, if physicalism is true, that is, all there are are dominoes, molecules in motion, governed by natural law. Notice the language, governed by natural law. Then our actions are governed by natural law, not by acts of will. And if our actions are governed by, action, by natural law, I don't know why anybody thinks that we should be either praised or blamed for anything. The domino does not get praised for being struck by another domino, nor blamed for striking the next domino. It just happens. It's a causal chain that cannot be interrupted by any physical force, except maybe some other intervening physical force that is just a different line of dominoes falling in a different direction that creates a different causal chain. Point being, if physicalism is true, which is what a lot of scientists hold to be true, then we are in a causally closed universe. There is no agency. God's not around as an external agent outside of the universe to influence it. And there are no individuals that are making choices. We are just falling dominoes. So everything is determined. But if everything is determined, you could never know that. You would only believe it because you were determined by prior necessary and sufficient physical causes to believe that while somebody else was, uh, by the same set of circumstances, ended up believing some alternate thing by the prior causes in their life. And so we only have different beliefs because the dominoes are falling in different sequences, you know, and so consequently we have different kind of effects, but there's still is no 
freedom. So the idea of determinism um, follows its inherent to physicalistic systems in a closed system. And by the way, if physical systems were not determined, science wouldn't work. That's where you get the notion of scientific repeatability. Okay, things kind of happen over and over again, the same way, because you're setting the dominoes up in the same order. And that's how you can infer causality and certain um, principles of, uh, of uh, you, you know, actions and causes and stuff like that. Uh, uniform uh, behaviors of the natural realm, because you keep setting things up the same way, and then they all, the dominoes fall in exactly the same fashion, experimental repeatability. But of course, you can't have an experiment unless somebody sets the experiment up. Someone who is not himself or herself a mere effect of other causes, but is an agent, has to set up the experiment to then learn from the experiment something true about the nature of the universe. Okay? Now, notice I introduced another concept there. An agent. So there are two types of causation in the world. There is event causation, dominoes. One domino as as an event falling against another domino, creating another event falling against another domino, etc. Event causation. But notice if all the dominoes are set up, you're not going to have anything fall anywhere unless the first domino is flicked. And once someone, an agent, starts the causal chain, nothing's going to happen. You see, that's the unique things about an agent. Thing about an agent is that an agent can initiate a causal chain, and it's not just simply a piece in a causal chain series of cause and effects. And um, if determinism is true, there's no agency. Even though we feel like we're agents, we're thinking and causing and choosing not to do things and choosing to do others, which makes praise and blame appropriate for free individuals who, who could determine what they do. It's up to them. Uh, no, if, if that isn't there, then, you know, then it's just, we're just dominoes. Uh, now, it seems obvious that we're agents, and simple reflection tells us that. We initiate things. I'm, I'm deciding what to say here, and I'm picking my pen up now, and I'm making a note about something, because this is what I am choosing to do. And I have no reason to believe otherwise. I'm an agent. But if somebody is committed to physicalism to try to squeeze all these like occult forces, these hidden, dark, mysterious things, the the um, the what are the ghost in the machine kind of idea that human machines have souls, all that spooky stuff, that's silly stuff. Well, then you're stuck with physicalism, which means you're stuck with determinism, which means you don't think at all, not in the way that we think about thinking. You're not independently doing anything. You're not coming to any conclusions. You're just responding to prior causes. So, scientists are right. If physicalism is true, there is no freedom. But there is freedom, obviously. Therefore, physicalism is not true. It's that simple.
Now, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, the Bible says a couple of things. It, it, I mean, and, and the Bible never says God will never violate your free will. Never says that, okay? <clears throat> so people would say that all the time. Well, God would never violate your free will. Actually, there's a lot in the Bible that indicates quite the opposite, that God determines particular things to happen. All right. Now, how you—that's kind of a web, and sometimes it's hard to figure all of this out. It's, I think some of it can't be figured out. Okay, but nevertheless, um, free will is not sacrosanct in the Bible. Uh, but you, it is clear that free choices, in the common-sense understanding of the term, are being made. And people are held morally responsible for their choices one way or another. They're either punished for bad choices, or they are praised and rewarded for good choices. This is in the Bible. So all of these things entail some robust understanding of freedom. Humans are not machines. They're agents in the Bible. So even though it doesn't use language of free will, I don't think, but it still presumes freedom in all kinds of aspects. The Bible does not represent a a deterministic, machine-like universe in which we are all simply uh, cogs of, in the wheels of the, the machinery of the universe, all right? <clears throat> that having been said, though, it does seem clear that there are things that God determines to take place. There are certain ends that He guarantees will happen, and sometimes these ends intersect with human will. You know, I mean, salvation is an example of that. Now, of course, there's a debate on this, but th those who are saved are called the chosen and are called the elect. Those are the biblical words that are used to describe them, okay? Now, it seems on a common-sense understanding of, the, of those, the, the word chosen and elect, that there is a chooser and there is a one who's receiving the choosing, and there is an elector and one who is elected. And um, so there does seem to be a common sense understanding that some things happen in our lives because God decided they're going to happen. And maybe one of those things is salvation, that God is responsible for rescuing us. We don't rescue ourselves in any way, shape, or form. Now, there's a, that's a, there's a debate on that, between Arminians and Calvinists, and that's or Reformed folk, and it's a legitimate debate, and it's a, a a noble distinction that people make, and they're good people on either sides. And you know, I set up on one side of that discussion, and but the point, all the point I'm making is, is that uh, th there are some things that everybody agrees that God has determined will ultimately take place. The final consequence of the the or the disposition of the saved and the unsaved um, heaven and hell and events that will take place that will bring about God's purposes the the advent of Messiah the suffering of Jesus all carried out according to the predetermined plan of God that's the language that the text uses and God has, predestined those who believe in him to become conformed to the image of his Son. So there are things that 
of a certainty will take place, regardless of what human beings choose, because God has destined those things to happen. Now, here's the key point. Just because God has destined some things to happen, and there's a difference of opinion on what those things are, those are the different theological camps, doesn't mean that that the, that the universe is a machine and human beings are robots. All right? It doesn't mean that at all. Because there's there, there can be some things that are secured, the ends are secured, determined by God, but predetermined by God. But other things that we're perfectly free to do. And, the, you know, that's that's not a problem. Now, by the way, I don't, I do not think that, uh, just for the sake of discussion, I got 45 seconds here, that love is something that requires free choice for love to be real. And the reason I say that is I didn't, I, I choose to act loving towards people in my, my life, but there are people that I love for a different reason. I don't love them as a result of my free choice. I love them for a different reason. It happened. But I choose to love them when I don't feel love for them because it's the right thing to do. So love is not a function of freedom. Um, But that's kind of another discussion. I just thought I'd throw that out before the music came up and you could chew on that. But I appreciate your calls for the uh, open mic call sessions, and uh, I will be, you know, maybe next week, actually live back with you here on Standard Reason. Greg Kokel here. Give them a heaven, friends. Bye-bye.